Okay, so we live in a time when we have access and are overwhelmed by more information than any other time in human history. Would you agree? There is the internet where searching for information is at our fingertips. There's social media apps, there's news apps, there's phone text, there's texting apps, and there's email. And all of that in addition, in addition to the forms of information that my generation grew up with, like television and radio and magazines and newspapers, just to name a few. The marketplace today is crowded with organizations and resources all vying for our attention. And when it comes to Christianity, there's no shortage of teaching ministries designed to take on any number of Christian topics. There are Christian teachers on TikTok. There are Christian teachers on YouTube teaching all kinds of things. Same is true of radio. There are parachurch ministries offering resources to fill niches for churches and individuals. Without a doubt, it is the wild, wild west out there. And much of the information we're exposed to really has no verification or oversight, no tests of its ferocity. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of good stuff out there. But there's also a lot of bad stuff out there. Nowhere is it more important for us to get our information right than when it comes to our understanding of Christ. There are biblical truths that are essential to being a Christian. There are also doctrines or positions held by churches, although very important for us to wrestle with, really are not essential because we don't fully understand Scripture's position on them. But the essentials have to do with the doctrines that are absolutely clear in Scripture, and as it happens, all have to do with our salvation. For instance, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, or the three-in-one nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all have relationship with each other. But yet there is only one God. How does that work? I don't comprehend that. I don't, I don't know how, you know, how does a black hole work? How does eternity work, right? I mean, we don't have the answer to those things, but we know they're true. God says that is true. You know, for thousands of years, since the time of Moses, when we were given the law of Moses, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4 has been recited throughout the entire Jewish world for thousands of years. It is to this very day recited with morning prayer and evening prayer. It's called the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. And it goes, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Chat, which means, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We affirm that as Christians. God is one. Now, how that works, I don't know. I don't profess to know. Because God didn't make me the way he is, Right? He didn't, he didn't uh, give me three persons to interact with each other inside of me. Well, some people do, but I guess they, they call that mental illness, right? So, but for God, that's who he is, okay? Salvation by God's grace alone, an essential doctrine. Salvation through the atoning work of Jesus Christ alone on the cross, 
the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, or the authority of scripture, those are all essentials. The teaching this morning is on false teachers, and it's by no means exhaustive, but it will emphasize the foundations upon which all the essentials to Christian doctrine rest. Who is Christ? And with everything out there, how do we know what's right? How do we discern truth from false teaching? Does it matter? This morning, we're going to talk about that. So I hope you're, you're buckled up. We're going to study a whole book of the Bible this morning in one sitting. So um, you probably won't have to worry about watching uh, New Year's Eve come in tonight. No, no I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm just kidding. It's not going to be. We are actually, uh, we are going to study a whole book, or more correctly, a letter of the Bible this morning. We're going to take a look at the letter of 2 John. And don't worry, it's only 13 verses long. So I'll give you a little overview while you're trying to find this tiny letter in the back of your Bibles, if you have your Bibles. If you've got a, a program or an app, you know, you're fortunate. It'll take you right to it. But I'll give you a couple clues. It's after 1 John, and it's right before 3 John. So the author of the letter of 2 John, not surprisingly, is John, right? The Apostle John. The Apostle John is responsible for writing five books of the letter, five books of or letters of the Bible, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. And it's believed he wrote both 1st and 2nd John near the same time period in approximately 90 AD from the city of Ephesus. Now, the church was being influenced and confused by false teachers first described in 1 John. The false teachers or teachings or heresies were denounced, and the church was warned by John not to entertain the messengers of this heresy. This letter was probably sent to one of the churches in John's community of churches, a cluster of churches in Asia Minor that were the recipients of John's apostolic ministry. And it's important for us to keep in mind at this time in, in the Christian church, most churches were home churches. They were, in, they were hosted in people's homes. Um, the letter was probably, uh, excuse me, verse one of this letter, of uh, John 2 will um, gives us some clues about the original audience. The phrase, the elect lady and her children in the introduction of who the letter is written to. Most commentators think John was using this term as a metaphor for a particular local church. The nature of the letter points to sort of a corporate body or group, uh, a local church, rather than a private individual. In other words, it was a figure of speech. Regardless, though, the importance to us is going to be the same. The purpose of the letter was to emphasize the need to follow Christ in truth and in love and to warn against false teachers. The Christian reader is being urged to live in the truth and to continue practicing Christian love. The second and equally powerful reason for this letter was as a warning against false teachers who refused to acknowledge Christ and were trying to persuade others to do the same. Love does not mean unlimited tolerance 
and indeed has limits when it comes to showing hospitality to those who refuse to acknowledge Christ as a son, as God's son, come to earth in human flesh. The deceivers here were probably the same false teachers identified by John in his first letter. So this letter is about truth, it's about love, and it's about false teachers. Uh, John's second letter is very much similar to 1 John. All the same major themes appear in 2 John that one reads in 1 John. In both epistles, John warns his readers to live in truth, love one another, be on guard against false teachers, and to stick to the teachings of the apostles. Okay, so let's begin in 2 John 1. We'll uh, start there and reads, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. In the letter, John introduces himself as the elder instead of playing the apostle card, right? Everyone in that day would have known who John was. He would have been, he would have had near rock star status at that time within the church. Um, as one of the original apostles, he not only learned at the feet of Jesus, but he was one of the three closest disciples of Jesus. John's being very humble here, yet underscoring both his authority as a Christian and probably his actual age. John was most likely very advanced in age by this time. He said, to the elect lady and her children. As I mentioned before, this probably serves as a metaphor for a church and its congregants. Whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. John refers to truth five times in the first four verses of this letter. Obviously, this is an important point he wants to make. Truth matters. John makes the point that his love for them is grounded in truth. And as believers, we love one another, not because we always agree. We love each other because of our common truth we share. We are family, and just like our biological families, uh, we don't always get along. Um, we don't always like each other. Don't worry, I, I like all of you. But we do love each other, and we help each other, and we serve each other, and we come alongside each other. That's what a family does. That's what love is, right? Truth functions as a bond of believers' fellowship. It also keeps out false teachers. In our culture today, we hear people referring to their truth, or they'll say something like, speak your truth. But the Bible declares the existence of an absolute truth. God is true. His words and his ways are true. And if something or someone introduces a teaching which contradicts the unchanging nature of God's truth and the gospel, it's false. It's deceptive, and it's dangerous for us as Christians. The truth which, uh, um, let's, actually, let's go to verse 2 and 3. Um, because of this truth, it says, because of this truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son, in truth and in love. The truth which lives in us and will be with us forever 
personifies the idea of truth. Jesus Christ is the full expression and embodiment of God's truth. We see this in John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This truth dwells in all believers. John 14, 17, the next verse, or a few verses down. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. And in John 16, 13, we're told, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Truth is more than just having the right doctrine. Truth centers around Jesus Christ. The truth is the reality of Jesus Christ. Because Christ is eternal, truth is eternal, not subject to change. Because Christ lives in believers, both he and his truth will be with them forever. The words John uses here in his introduction of grace and peace, that was a standard greeting in many of the New Testament letters. Grace means God's undeserved favor shown to sinners. Mercy refers to not getting the just punishment we deserve for our sins against God. And peace refers to the peace that Christ made between sinners and God through his death on the cross. Peace also refers to the inner assurance and tranquility that God places in our hearts, producing confidence and contentment when we trust in Christ. Remember, Jeff spoke about that last Sunday. Truth and love form a bridge through this letter. John speaks more directly about truth in verses 2 and 4, and he speaks about love in verse 5. Truth and love must always go together. Must always go together. Verse 4. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. It seems as though John may have been brought news about this church, including information that it had suffered a division because of the works of false teachers. But John rejoiced that some of these believers were remaining true to the gospel. Christianity had spread to many cities in the world. Sometimes there were several house churches in a city. And like today, there were a lot of false teachers around. And there were many false teachers about Jesus in the days of the early church. So the apostles spent much of their time correcting uh, which of these teachings about Jesus were true and which were false. The true teachings were labeled as orthodox or apostolic, not to be confused by, uh, with churches of that same name. The false teachers were labeled as heretical, Believers who followed the teachings of the apostles, both in doctrine and in practice, were walking in truth. Walking in truth. That refers to Christians acting out the truth they professed in their lives. And those who were walking in the truth were conducting their lives just as the Father had commanded. The commandment to live in truth 
came from the Father through the Son to the disciples. What is this commandment? We must believe in the name and in the physical body of the Son, Jesus Christ. Verses 5 and 6. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. The word ask here by John is actually a strong term in the Greek. It implies authority on John's part as well as his deep concern for the church. What John was asking was not about a new commandment like he had just received a new revelation from God, like the false teachers were doing, but instead what he asked was about a commandment that the believers had from the beginning. That commandment is that we love one another. The statement that Christians should love one another is a reoccurrent theme in the New Testament. Those who claim to love God and believe in his son must put their faith into practice by loving. Verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is a deceiver and an antichrist, or and the antichrist. John gives us a warning here. Many deceivers, that is the false teachers, who deny that Jesus came in a real body. And John's first letter, he mentions this heresy. In 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world. Jesus had warned his disciples that false teachers would arise and lead many astray. Jesus warned us in Matthew 7, 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus' words had come true. One group in particular, called the Docetists, denied Jesus' real humanity and instead promoted this falsehood that he only seemed to have a human body. Believers, however, must hold on to what they believed, that Jesus is truly the Son of God who came to earth in human form. He is both fully man and fully God. These false teachers were against Christ. They were both deceivers and antichrists. John isn't speaking about the Antichrist here. That's a specific prophecy about a person who steps onto the world stage near the end times. What John is speaking about here is anyone who opposes the teachings of Jesus and falsely teaches something different is a type of Antichrist. Many false teachers still promote unbiblical understandings about Jesus. And these teachers are dangerous because they distort the truth and undermine the foundations of the Christian faith. They use the right words, but they change the meanings of those words. In verse 8, he says, Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. 
What they had worked for refers to the labor of John, the other apostles and other co-workers who had been proclaiming the truth and defending the truth against false teaching in order to build the church up. The believers in turn were a caution to use care in protecting that work from the destructive teachings of false teachers. Verse 9 says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Now this verse explains the loss referred to in verse 8. John did not want the believers to lose what had been brought to them, the teachings of Christ. In contrast, believers who continued in the teaching of Christ will find unbroken relationship with both the Father and the Son. Verse 10 and 11 says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now that may seem a little confusing to us as Christians because the scriptures plainly teach in many places that we are required to show hospitality to others, right? Romans 12, 13, 1 Timothy 3, 2, Hebrews 13, 2, 1 Peter 4, verses 8 through 10 are examples. But what John's talking about here is to not receive into the meeting houses of the church. Remembering, church was held in people's homes. These meetings could have been disrupted and confused by the presence of false teachers. The only way to deal with such people was to not receive them into their fellowship. They were not to even give them a hearing. To welcome them would be to participate in their evil deeds, encouraging others uh, or excuse, uh, encouraging or helping false teachers. And even if only to attempt to show Christian kindness, it would serve to confuse and, and uh, imply a tacit approval of these false teachers. John says avoid all that. And then in verse 12 through 13, it's 12 and 13, it says, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. John really longed for a face to face visit with his beloved Christian um, friends. He understood that writing to them was important, but it was no substitute for true fellowship. We shouldn't rely solely on texts and streaming media to fellowship with our brothers and sisters. I mean, I understand some people are homebound and ill and have different reasons for, you know, for not coming in person to fellowship. I totally get that, and I am so grateful that we have the technology to, to still continue to present church to people um, who can't make it to church for whatever reason. And there are, you know, countless reasons why. I, I get that, and I, and I totally understand that. Um, but that's not really what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is God made us human beings as social creatures. He gave us all spiritual gifts as Christians. We need to share those gifts with each other. We need to lay hands on each other and pray. 
We need to worship him and experience him together. That's how we were designed. When God wanted to communicate with this world, he gave us his written word. But even more amazingly, when he came in the form of the living word and fellowshiped with his creation, isn't that even more amazing? He fellowshiped with his creation. He wants us to fellowship. That's how he created us. Amen? So in conclusion, I, I want us to notice John didn't randomly choose false teachings about Christ. There's, there's a method to, the, his, to his madness here. John did so because salvation proper, spiritual understanding, and Christian growth begin with and depend on having a correct understanding of who Christ is. Without understanding who God is, we can't understand what God has actually done for us. So what are the essentials of Christ? What are the essential teachings? I want to encourage you to do a deep dive study into Scripture on your own on this subject. And I've got 10 verses here that I will give you that I think are a good starting place. Uh, you can write these down. You can go back and look at the, you know, you can go back and, and look at the, uh, the video later, or you can just ask me and I'll send them to you. But the first is John 1.14. Isaiah 9.6, John 1.1, 1, 1, John 8.58, 8.58, John 10.30, John 20.28, 20, 20.28, 1 Corinthians 8.6, Colossians 2.9, Hebrews 1.3, and Hebrews 1.3. One, eight. Those are good 10 verses that are a good starting place for a deep dive into who Christ is. We remember God is triune or a trinity, three in one, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal in relationship with each other, and yet are one God. Remember the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is fully God and fully human. It's a mystery. We can't comprehend it. Nevertheless, God declares it. He was preexistent, existed before time with the Father, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, and resurrected by the power of God. Us human beings created good. Nonetheless, we disobeyed God and we fell. Furthermore, humans, sinful in nature, can't save ourselves. Can't save ourselves. We have to be reconciled to God on the basis of his work, not ours. That, in it, that reconciliation was initiated by God based solely upon the atoning death of Christ on the cross where he died for our sins in our place so that we wouldn't face eternal judgment. And on the third day, that same Jesus rose from the dead by the power of God and ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, showing us his power over death 
and we anxiously await that day when each of us joins him in life eternal. We believe the Bible is the word of God, trustworthy and authoritative for every area of human life. Amen? You see, who Christ is is essential to everything. Everything. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word, Lord, and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his atoning death on the cross. We can never live up to that, Lord. We can never be good enough. We can never do it on our own. But thank you, Lord, that you provided the way. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you for your word. We thank you for sticking with us. We thank you uh, when we aren't worthy you still stand alongside us. We are so grateful, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.